going to uh, base this presentation on some preliminary thinking that I've been uh, doing connected to a project I'm involved in with Bridget and also with Sarah Walker, which is looking at European citizenship. But in doing so, we're trying to think about the ways in which citizenship and non-citizenship are essentially processes of inclusion and exclusion. That is, the ways in which uh, the status of citizens as much as non-citizens incorporates processes of exclusion as well as uh, differentiated inclusion. So as I say, one of the concerns is to examine the ways in which inclusion and exclusion with regards to welfare rights of citizens uh, and non-citizens is less a dichotomy between inclusion and exclusion, between insiders and outsiders, but rather forms of differential inclusion and exclusion which cut across groups of citizens and non-citizens alike. For example, EU citizens residing in an EU state of which they are not uh, a citizen are not totally included, so they do not have rights to welfare that are equivalent uh, to citizens of the UK, for example. And non-EU citizens are not totally excluded. So non-EU citizens with permanent residence and those with temporary residence have very different entitlements to state welfare provisions. But importantly, UK citizens are not equally included either. Welfare states are shaped by social divisions of class, of gender, race, ethnicity, among others, that intersect with those based on nationality and immigration status. And at the same time, welfare states shape those divisions uh, and inequalities in different ways. This is evident when we look at welfare states uh, from a gender perspective, when we look, look at the ways in which the restructuring of welfare states and the implications uh, for both citizens and non-citizens alike are fund fundamentally shaped by the gendered division of labour, of paid and unpaid work, of productive and reproductive labour. So with this in mind, I'm going to uh, attempt to look at the ways in which work-related conditions increasingly determine people's access to social assistance across groups of citizens and non-citizens, albeit in very different ways. So I'm going to focus specifically on uh, EEA citizens in the UK, on the exclusions of European citizenship, and consider the gendered implications of restricting rights to social assistance not on the basis of people's needs, care being fundamental to social needs and social relations, nor on the basis of their status as citizens uh, or non-citizens, but primarily in terms of their value as workers. So debates about migration, welfare and citizenship are often framed by questions regarding the ex exclusion of migrants, of non-citizens, from the provisions of welfare states. So one dimension of those debates concerns the ways in which migrants are excluded from social rights on the basis of the terms and conditions of their legal status as non-citizens. While another dimension concerns the extent to which public support of citizens for social rights, for generous provisions within welfare states, may be dependent on the exclusion of migrants from the provisions of nationally bounded welfare states. So while the former supports greater inclusion of non-citizens, 
uh, an expansion, if you like, of universalism to extend social rights to non-citizens. The latter supports exclusion, limiting social rights on the grounds that universalism is premised on ex ex its exclusivity to citizens within the nation state. The work of Diane Sainsbury has, importantly, tried to show the ways in which both welfare policies on the one hand and what she refers to as incorporation policies, policies towards immigration and naturalisation, are both implicated in shaping processes of inclusion and exclusion of migrants with regard to their social rights. But social citizenship is both a question of legal status with respect to the rights and obligations that formal citizenship confers, and of course a question of normative status, of ideas about who is deserving and underserving in the provision of welfare and on what basis. Debates regarding immigration and welfare have arguably been limited by the extent to which they revolve around this binary distinction between citizens and non-citizens, with citizens constructed as a benchmark of inclusion against which the rights of migrants or non-citizens are measured. However, we know, of course, that citizens and non-citizens are not unitary groups, legally or normatively. They're divided by divisions of class, gender, race and ethnicity, sharing common lines of division which intersect with divisions based on nationality and immigration status. As the work of scholars such as Ruth Lister has demonstrated, citizenship is exclusionary from within, that is within uh, the boundaries of the nation state, as much as being exclusion, exclusionary from without. The relationship of women and men to citizenship, for example, is fundamentally different, as full access to citizenship is premised on being a full-time worker. It's the ways in which work and work-related conditions structure our access to welfare that I will essentially focus on and return to with respect to UK and EA citizens. Okay, so what are the social rights of the citizen? What is the basis for states granting people access to a minimum of resources? Welfare states analysis, notably the work of Esping Anderson, sought to identify the extent to which state welfare provisions shape levels of decommodification, that is, the ability of individuals to meet their welfare needs independent of the market. Social rights including the provision of benefits by the state to mitigate the risks of unemployment, enable individuals to access at least a minimum of resources without relying on the market. At the same time, welfare states shape levels of stratification, constructing as much as alleviating social divisions and inequalities among citizens. Social rights or social provisions may be universal or selective, aimed at promoting greater equality or the maintenance of social divisions. This is evident if we look simply at the nature of different types of social security systems. Social insurance or contribution-based systems confer rights to social security through waged work. So on the basis of contributions that we pay through employment, as workers we're entitled to cash benefits during times of unemployment. Social assistance or non-contribution-based benefits 
are provided on the basis of income and or other needs, examples being child benefits, income support paid to people who are not economically active, for example, uh, mothers with young children, and disability allowance. The advent of social citizenship with the development of welfare states was regarded as making a level of decommodified support available to all citizens, guaranteeing access to resources because of their status as citizens, not as commodities. Put simply, social rights are underpinned by the basic principle that state welfare provisions offer citizens a minimum of welfare independent of their value as a worker. Of course, this notion of social rights is problematic if we consider the exclusionary nature of social rights for non-citizens, but also if we consider the ways in which citizenship is in and of itself exclusionary, being premised on assumptions about the citizen as a worker. As feminist scholars have emphasised, welfare states and their relationship to citizens entail not only divisions of class between citizens, but gendered divisions of labour. As Jane Lewis's work has emphasised, the post-war welfare states settlement, uh, that is the post-war welfare state settlement in the UK context, of guaranteed social rights was a settlement between male labour and capital. Access to welfare in the context of the development of the welfare state in the UK was underpinned by what she refers to as a male breadwinner model, men being primarily workers and women primarily carers. Men were granted social rights as waged workers and notably were seen as regularly employed, full-time workers. Those marginal to the labour market, including women, were granted social rights to dependence benefits in the form of family allowances, for example. Women's social rights were thus derived from their relationship to men as mothers and wives as much as workers. The ability of women to achieve decommodification on a par with men as citizens was thus first and foremost dependent on their ability to commodify on a par with men. But of course, women's non-participation in the labour markets with regard to their social status as economically inactive workers <coughs> and the nature of their participation as economically active workers is fundamentally shaped by, the, by their reproductive labour. So women leave the market, not simply through unemployment, but in order to care. Thus, as Jane Lewis has emphasised, women are both recipients of state welfare, but at the same time are very often providers of unpaid welfare in caring for children uh, and other dependent adults. While the male breadwinner model continues to underpin social policies in various forms. There's been a shift across developed welfare states towards what Lewis refers to as the adult worker model, or the citizen worker model. So with the increase in, participation, increase in, promo increase in promotion of women's labour market participation, alongside the pursuit of active labour market policies more generally, all adult citizens, women and men, are increasingly treated the same as citizen workers. However, despite the increase in women's participation in paid work, their status as workers is, of course, not equivalent to men's. There are, for example, high levels of part-time work among women in some countries, 
including the UK, and gender pay gaps are persistent. Moreover, the unpaid work of caring for children, older and disabled people on which welfare states depend is still predominantly carried out by women. So women may be treated more like citizen workers, but this has not led to their equal status as citizens, given the subordination of care to work as a valued social activity, and despite policies aimed at reconciling work and care. So with these broad issues in mind, I'm now going to turn to consider the ways in which ideas about work and our status as workers structure access uh, to welfare for citizens and non-citizens alike. So I'll firstly look at this in relation to UK citizens and how work-related conditions underpin their entitlements to social assistance, and then focus in more detail on EEA citizens and how work-related conditions underpin restrictions on their access to social assistance in Europe and the UK specifically. So with regard to uh, EEA citizens, I want to look at the ways in which European citizenship is enforcing restricted social rights on the basis of the citizen as worker, but at the same time on the basis of the uh, male breadwinner model. And uh, I'll reflect on the gendered implications of this, both for citizens and <coughs> for non-citizens. So with the restructuring of welfare states, universal rights to welfare have increasingly been replaced with what Peter Dwyer has referred to as conditional entitlements. So citizens who are claiming benefits are not the bearers of rights to welfare, or indeed the active choosers of welfare, as they may be conceived of in other um, areas of restructured welfare provision, but are cast as the obligatees who are required to engage in work-related activities as a condition of their access to benefits. In what has been described as a shift from a welfare to a workfare state, the provision of cash benefits by the state to citizens of working age who are not in paid work has been driven by the development of labour market activation policies with a view to reducing levels of unemployment and economic inactivity. Access to social assistance on the basis of income-related needs has become increasingly conditional on undergoing activities towards re-entering employment. The entitlement of citizens to claim social assistance is dependent on their compliance with the status of job seeker. The individual claimant must be able to work, must be available for work and actively seeking work. These work-related conditions include, for example, the mandatory participation of uh, benefits claimants in employment-related programmes, job search, job search interviews and, more contentiously, examples of benefits claimants being required to participate in unpaid uh, labour, work experience at Tesco, for example. Rights to welfare for citizens, it has been argued, have thus been replaced by conditional entitlements on the basis of individual responsibility to sell one's labour through the market, what Klaus Offer has referred to as the re-commodification of labour. Welfare policies in the UK, moreover, have increasingly involved punitive measures, including sanctions, towards citizens who do not comply with work-related conditions while claiming benefits. 
The use of sanctions, to which the uh, quote um, from David Cameron refers to, uh, involves removing the benefits of a claimant as a penalty for non-compliance with those conditions. At the same time, work-related conditions and the use of sanctions have increasingly been extended to groups of citizens who are not in paid work due to disabilities or caring responsibilities who would previously not have been treated as job seekers on that basis. For example, lone parents with children over five years of age are now no longer entitled to claim income support but must register as job seekers by claiming job seekers allowance. Campaigns surrounding the treatment of disabled people as job seekers and the associated withdrawal of their rights to welfare are also a prominent recent example of the ways in which citizens' welfare entitlements have become increasingly subject to work-related conditions. The problem, of course, with treating us all the same as workers is not that women with young children or people with disabilities don't want to work, but of course their relationship to the market is fundamentally shaped by inequalities that the simple status of worker masks over. And moreover, our status as carers is rendered subordinate to our status as commodified labour. Okay, I'm now going to try and make connections between the treatments of citizens, UK citizens, in terms of work-related conditions attached to their entitlements to welfare, to the entitlements of EEA citizens in terms of the increasing application of work-related conditions to uh, EEA citizens, both with regards to their right to reside within another member state and attached to that their derived rights to claim social assistance within that state. As the quote by Duncan Smith here indicates, restrictions, work-related restrictions on EEA citizens' uh, rights to reside have been increasingly used as a means of restricting both access to the UK for EEA citizens and, significantly, their ability to make claims on the welfare states within the UK. European citizenship has not simply reinforced the relationship between paid work and welfare, but has arguably replaced rights to social assistance on the basis of people's status as citizens with entitlements on the basis of one's status as a worker within the EU. As Louise Ackers and Charlotte O'Brien have argued, many of the social rights implied by citizenship of the EU derive from an individual's status as a worker, not as a carer, nor as a citizen. Under the Free Movement Directive, EEA citizens have the right of free movement and residence across the European economic area, with no conditions on their stay in another member state for the first three months. They do not have the right to claim social assistance within this period, although this does not apply to contribution-based benefits. So EEA nationals can use periods spent working and paying contributions in other EEA, con other EEA countries to satisfy contribution conditions for these benefits. So if you've previously worked in another EEA country, 
you pay contributions through work, as a worker you are able to access uh, contribution-based benefits in another e EA member state. After this, residence is contingent on EEA nationals not becoming an undue burden on the member state of residence. So broadly speaking, an EEA or EU citizen who moves from one country, from one member state to another, has a right to reside after an initial three-month period if they are economically active. That is, if they are a worker, self-employed, or a job seeker, or a self-sufficient student, or are otherwise able to financially support themselves. And after five years, their right of residence becomes permanent. So European citizenship confers rights to reside and to claim social assistance on the basis of one's market status. EEA citizens are able to claim social assistance not simply by virtue of their status as European citizens with income-related needs, but by virtue of their relationship to the market as workers or otherwise economically autonomous individuals. Non-workers only have the right to reside if they have sufficient resources for themselves and their families not to become a burden on the social, as social assistance system of the host member state during their period of residence and have comprehensive sickness insurance cover in the host member state under the Free Movement Directive. The rights of EEA citizens to reside in another EU member state and to access social assistance are thus fundamentally underpinned by divisions between workers and non-workers. But they're also underpinned by divisions between workers. So what constitutes work and who constitutes a worker depends largely on EU case law. And this reveals further the ways in which certain types of work and certain types of workers, notably those who are engaged in more precarious forms of paid work, and of course those engaged in the unpaid work of care, are not able to fully achieve the privileged status of the EU worker citizen. On the basis of test cases in the European courts, a worker is defined as someone who is employed, who is remunerated for their work, that is they are in a paid employment relationship, and whose work is considered to be effective and genuine to the exclusion of activities on such a small scale as to be regarded as marginal and ancillary. EEA citizens who have left work or have exited from the labour market are able to retain their status as a worker if those reasons for exit are due to suffering incapacity, due to an illness or accident, or due to, for example, redundancy, so if they're made involuntarily unemployed. But their ability in that case to retain the status of worker is time limited, depending on how long they've be previously been in employment, or if they're um, pursuing job-related training. So if you leave a job because of care-related activities, you're rendered invisible as a worker. 
i.e. you no longer have any rights attached to your labour outside of the market. In the UK, work-related conditions have been imposed through the rights to reside elements of the habitual residence test. The right to reside uh, element to this test was introduced in 2004 <coughs> with uh, the accession of um, Central and Eastern European uh, countries to um, the European Union as a means of limiting entitlement to social assistance for EEA citizens. So in the UK context, in order to be eligible for social assistance, which includes, without going into a long list of uh, um, different types of benefits uh, in the UK context, including income support, so uh, benefits that can be claimed on the basis of uh, income-related needs, but not requiring you to be economically active or to be seeking work, uh, income-based job seekers allowance, child benefits and child tax credit, and also income-related employment and support allowance. In order to claim those forms of assistance, EA nationals have to demonstrate that they have a right to reside in the UK. Those who are assessed as having worker status, who've been in continuous work in the UK for the past three months, or who have retained worker status for the reasons mentioned previously, automatically have a right to reside. However, in order to be considered to have worker status, which is, an, is in and of itself, of course, exclusionary, the UK has recently introduced further restrictions aimed at tightening up what constitutes a worker. So, for example, from this year, in assessing who is a worker, a new minimum earnings threshold has been introduced, which specifies the amount of earnings for work to be considered genuine and effective. That amount is £150 a week, which is equivalent to working 24 hours a week at the national minimum wage. Of course, this is um, all very recent, so it's impossible to say exactly what the impact of those changes will be. But potentially, EU nationals who've been in particularly precarious, low-waged forms of work may find that for the purposes of claiming social assistance, their work does not count as work, thus denying them the status of worker. And indirectly, the ability to claim social assistance in the UK. Non-workers, so those who are not employed or in self-employment, are required to demonstrate their status as job seekers to have a right to reside in the UK and to claim social assistance. Recent changes to the habitual residence test requires applicants to demonstrate their status as job seekers according to more restrictive criteria. Those restrictions include a greater range of questions that uh, may be used by staff carrying out an habitual residence test interview, including asking applicants whether their language skills are sufficient to enable them to get a job, what efforts they've made in looking for work in the UK. Applicants may likewise be required to provide evidence uh, of job-seeking activities. And increasingly in practice, individuals uh, may be required to seek 
work that they can demonstrate they have a reasonable chance of um, taking up. So they may be required to demonstrate that they have the necessary skills and experience uh, relevant to jobs available in the area in which they're seeking work. For a national, that is for a UK citizen who's applying for job seekers allowance, however, by contrast, they must be required to take up any kind of work, whether they have the skills or experience uh, to do that work or not. So entitlements to welfare for EA citizens is derived from an entitlement to reside in the UK, which is dependent on the reliance of the individual on the market. Carers are non-workers and have no rights to reside or, by virtue of their lack of a right to reside, to access social assistance on this basis. But at the same time, European citizenship confers rights to welfare to EEA or non-EEA citizens on the basis of their status as family members of an EEA national with a right to reside. Thus, we can see that elements of the male breadwinner model are reinforced at the same time, as non-workers may have a right to reside and to claim social assistance derived from their relationship to an EEA worker. That relationship may be as a spouse or as the primary carer of a child in education if one of the parents of the child was a worker with a right to reside. If, however, you can't demonstrate you have a right to reside as a parent, either by being a worker or job seeker or through your relationship to a worker, you're unable to access child benefits or child's tax credits. So EEA women with children seeking to claim child benefits and income-related benefits are thus either required to be job seekers with temporal restrictions on their right to reside unless they take up work within a minimum period of six months or they're required to be cast as the dependents of an EEA worker with a right to reside that depends on maintaining a relationship to that worker. So in what ways does European citizenship denote forms of exclusion from within and without? That is the exclusion of those who are seemingly included as EU citizens. There have been a number of court cases concerning the legality of the right to reside test in the UK and its application to non-contribution based benefits and cases concerning the conditions under which EU citizens have a right to reside. The European Commission concluded that the right to reside element of the habitual residence test in the UK contravenes EU law on the basis that it indirectly discriminates against non-UK nationals coming from other EU member states, as UK citizens automatically pass the test. And uh, the Commission issued a reasoned opinion under EU infringement procedures uh, and legal action is now being taken against the UK um, through the European Court of Justice. But what lies at the heart of these uh, legislative processes is essentially the extent to which work, one's ability to claim worker status, operates to the exclusion of care as the basis for claims making as European citizens and as the basis for granting entitlements to welfare. This is illustrated uh, by the legal case of uh, Jesse Sompri versus the Secretary of State uh, for Work and Pensions in the UK. 
So Jessie Saint-Prix is an EEA national from France who is a 27-year-old French teacher. She came to the UK in 2006 and worked for just under a year as a teaching assistant. She then enrolled on a postgraduate teacher's course. After starting the course, she became pregnant. She withdrew from her course and started working for an employment agency, working in nursery schools. But when she was almost six months pregnant, the work became too strenuous for her. As an agency worker and not an employee under, under UK law, she was not entitled to take maternity leave. So Jessie Sompri stopped working and looked, she stopped her agency work and looked for part-time work. As none was available, she made a claim for income support. This was refused on the basis that she did not have a right to reside in the UK because she was no longer working. She did not retain the status of worker, despite having previously been uh, working in the UK, since under EU law she was deemed to have voluntarily left her job in the late stages of her pregnancy. If, of course, she had been able to take maternity leave, she would have been able to retain her status as a worker under EU law. Indicating the double bind of her gendered inclusion in the labour markets, in less secure agency work, where she did not have the same rights as an employee, and her gendered exclusion from the market due to her reproductive labour. Her child was born prematurely a few months later, and as she had no income, she resumed full-time work three months after giving birth. She appealed against the UK's decision to refuse her benefits, and the case has since progressed through the UK courts and subsequently to the EU Court of Justice for, for a preliminary ruling on the interpretation of the concept of a worker under EU law and whether uh, she should have um, been allowed to retain the status as a worker, having had to leave her um, job uh, in the late stages of pregnancy. The circumstances of Jessie Sompri highlight the ways in which entitlements to welfare are thus contingent on worker job seeker status for EEA citizens. Entitlement to welfare on the basis of care-related needs or responsibilities are not recognised as a right to reside cannot be derived from one's status as a carer. However, this case and others like it point to the extent to which the unpaid work of care places women as either dependent on the market, as workers or job seekers, or on male breadwinners to be included, that is, to be granted rights to social assistance. Jessie Sompri was a lone parent. If she'd been married or separated from the father of her child and he was an EEA worker, then she would have derived a right to reside as a family member and thus entitlement to social assistance. So the interactions of policies at the level of the nation state and the EU with regards to the welfare rights of EEA citizens highlight important connections that can be made in the analysis both of the exclusions of non-citizenship, the non-citizenship of migrants, but also the exclusions <coughs> of citizenship of UK citizens and of EEA citizens. European citizenship has on the one hand reinforced the model of the worker citizen underpinning social policies. EEA nationals may all 
uh, formally be European citizens, but they're not all formally or normatively included. Work has become a condition of access to welfare, not only with regards to contribution-based benefits, as, as has historically always been the case, but also non-contribution-based benefits that have been provided on the basis of citizens' needs for a guaranteed minimum of income, irrespective of their status as workers. But not all workers are equally included either. It is not simply paid work, but particular types of work and particular types of workers, work that is full-time, secure, continuous, with a permanent contract, skilled and high-waged, which confers social rights to citizens. Thus, it's as much a question of the ways in which particular groups are excluded on the basis of the nature of their participation in the labour market, as it is a question of how welfare is accorded to citizens as workers. Those groups, of course, include citizen women carrying out the unpaid work of care and those carrying out the low-paid work of care, for example, as agency workers, such as uh, Jessie Sompri. So ret to return to the exclusions of non-citizenship on which analyses of migration and welfare states have focused, state policies on immigration and naturalisation, of course, also privilege certain types of work and certain types of workers as a route to permanent residence and citizenship for non-citizen uh, migrants. <coughs> so while non-EEA citizens are rendered entirely dependent on the market as a condition of their temporary rights of residence in the UK, those who can demonstrate their economic value and self-sufficiency as high-wage workers and investors are among the privileged who may be granted permanent rights to reside. By failing to address our collective needs for welfare, and the centrality of care in meeting those needs, positioning individuals as economically autonomous units of labour within the market, groups of citizens and non-citizens whose relationship to the market is more precarious are basically all excluded together, though of course with different lines of inclusion and exclusion being drawn, lines which we've seen are highly gendered. But by making connections across the exclusions of citizenship and non-citizenship between EEA citizens whose rights to reside and whose rights to welfare are conditional on their ability to take up paid work that is not marginal <coughs> and ancillary, between EEA citizens and UK citizens whose rights to welfare is conditional on their willingness to take up any work marginal or otherwise, including participating in unpaid work programmes, and of course the non-EEA citizen whose paid work doesn't accord them any rights to reside or to welfare, we can potentially develop, I would argue, more inclusive ways of claims making that does not reduce our ability to meet our needs on the vagaries of the market. <coughs> <coughs>